0: Take your Bible, turn over to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33, lessons to live by from 1st and 2nd Peter. In April of 2021, we started a study on kingdom focus. And uh, one of the things we looked at was how to view sexual orientation, gender identity. We talked about, at that time, Christian nationalism and politics and how we're to respond to those things. As we think about November 8th just being a couple days away, we encourage you to vote. As a church, as a pastor, we don't tell you how to vote, but we provide guidelines through inserts that we put in the program and other means to prayerfully vote for people who uh, have the principles of God's word. What was the purpose of this lengthy series on Kingdom Focus? It was to help us assess and understand the times as a culture that we're living in comparing it to the Bible, and a biblical worldview, most importantly. We want to share how we're not just to survive by isolating ourselves away from the world, but engage the world and thrive in the midst of difficulty. There are countless stories in the Bible of people who lived in pagan and unrighteous cultures. We could think of Daniel when they were exiled to Babylon. We could think of Joseph. In the midst of Egypt, we think of Moses, who was called to deliver God's people out of Egypt after 430 years of slavery, and on and on it goes. And yet, God used these righteous people in those times, in those difficult situations, in times of persecution, to uh, bring glory and honor and point people to him. In August of 2021, we started on 1 Peter. We moved to 2 Peter with some breaks in there for holidays and my sabbatical. And I want to put a bookend on where we started with this focus on kingdom living in a world where we are dual citizens and it's becoming increasingly more difficult to live a holy, blameless life declaring Jesus Christ as Lord of our life and espousing to his teachings in scripture while living in our current settings. So our scripture reading today is found in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 33. We're going to talk about the watchman. You and I, we are the watchman as the believers in this culture. We're to be the ones, as this scripture is going to lay out, to, to warn the people of impending judgment if they continue to follow the ways of the world. It says in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, the prophet Ezekiel. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon the land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people that if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. Verse 5, he heard the sound of the trumpet and he did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But, in verse 6, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet... So that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I just pray today that as we wrap up this lengthy study, as we specifically look at the key verses in 1 Peter and 2 Peter today, cement these thoughts into our mind and help us to have the mindset that we need to have as we face the world that we're in and we face intensifying persecution, I believe, that's going to come upon believers in the church. And so guide and direct our thoughts today May we be open-minded. May we be listening to your Holy Spirit. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we rewind and summarize this kingdom focus, be reminded that every Christ follower must learn how to thrive, not just survive, until the end of life and time. So I'm, I'm emptying out the kitchen sink today. I'm giving you everything i got. of have listened to podcasts and studies over the last couple of years, and I want to give you some very important things that are application for how you can live in this current time. As a reminder, you see in your notes there, 1 Peter was written to Jews and Gentiles who were scattered abroad throughout Asia Minor and facing extreme persecution. The theme of that book was to educate and challenge the Christ follower how to live holy lives that thrive in a culture of hostility in order that the grace of God would be revealed in their lives. Second Peter, that book, talked about how to call Christians to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, their Savior, in order that they can discern false teaching and live in anticipation of the Lord's return. Today's message, as I pray to my prayer, is reflected in the key verses in these two books. So first of all, on your outline, be prepared to share the hope that is in you and is available to all. One of the key verses in 1 Peter was 1 Peter 3.15, but in your heart's Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. A lot packed into that verse. We are to let Christ be Lord of our life and live holy lives. The second part talks about that we are to be prepared to share the reason of the faith that's within us. And then the attitude is with gentleness and with respect. And when do we do that? Well, when it's convenient or when it's inconvenient. When we're in pain, emotional and physical pain, even in the midst of losing a loved one, losing a parent, a spouse, a child, a grandchild, even in the midst of going through divorce. I think of a, a lady who used to attend our church that we walked her through a, a very ugly divorce, but all the way through she was glorifying God. She was sharing her faith. I think of those who go through mental health and addiction issues. Loss of a job. We still share our faith. For men especially, this is hard. Men, we have to be careful that we're not finding our identity in our job, but be content with how God made us and who we are in Christ. Because at some point, we're not going to be in that job or that career anymore. Over the years, we've we've seen soldiers and athletes battle with their emotions and purpose in life as they transfer out of the military or go from being a professional athlete into a new world, a new chapter in their lives. And some of them struggle with those changes. Think of a devotional that I read this week in Exodus 3. God told Moses to demand that Pharaoh set the Lord's people free. Moses knew the Egyptian leaders would want God's credentials before they released their labor force. So He asked what credentials to use, and God answered simply to Moses, say that I am. God could have elaborated on his many roles, creator, designer of the universe, omnipotent Lord. Instead of focusing on the impressive things he did, he focused instead on who he was. To make it, we need to be able to be confident in who God has made us to be. And we share the hope that's within us when it's unexpected, when you look for the opportunity and you take it, when you're going through the difficult times in your life, especially when you're going through struggles. Because as you share your faith, it builds character in your life. It builds endurance. Our response reflects our humility and dependence upon God when we share what's going on in our lives with others. It's a testimony. It's a living, breathing testament to the faithfulness of God and the joy that can be had even in our painful times. So our application is this, even in our pain or in rejection, we are to share the love of Christ and the hope that he gives to each and every one of us. In fact, I would say that sometimes the best way we can share our testimony and have Christ's hope seen in us is when we're going through the most difficult times. Remember, when you take a grape and you squeeze it, you get that precious grape juice that's used in many different ways. And so as we're squeezed and character is revealed through our life, people can see Christ in us. A second thing we learned from 1 Peter 5 was this. Be faithful to stand on the true grace of God to the very end of life. In 1 Peter 5.12, he says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. The true grace of God. Stand firm in it. A parallel verse, Paul wrote, talking about the grace we stand on, Romans 5.2 Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The grace of God should be your motivation, my motivation to stay faithful through whatever comes our way. It's the resource that we have in the form of the Holy Spirit that keeps us faithful. Grace shows us how much he loved us before we loved him. Grace shows us he chose us before the creation of the world that he's making us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ every day, despite our sin, despite our weaknesses, that we are unique in who we are in Christ. When I was in seminary, I had the opportunity to drive up three hours away to Maryland and hear Francis Schaeffer in person talking about how then shall we live, as he saw 20, 30 years down the road prophetically what this culture would be like as we turned away from God, John Stone Street recently preached a message at our grandparenting conference. How now shall we live in our current culture? Those things that Francis Schaeffer alluded to are now taking place right before our very eyes. Take your Bible and turn over to Second Corinthians, chapter ten. 2 Corinthians, chapter ten. Paul writes in verse three of Second Corinthians, chapter ten. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Keep your finger there. I'll just read this verse, Ephesians 6.12. We'll come back to 2 Corinthians 10. But Paul said, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when we get upset with the policies of a politician or decisions that people make in the entertainment world or wherever it is, Just realize that they're influenced by the prince of darkness. They're influenced at times by the world system around them. And so 2 Corinthians 10 tells us there in verse 5 to destroy the arguments. Now we are weaponized for battle. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, put on the armor of God. And uh, James was telling us at men's group how he prays on the armor every day. And I try to do the same thing. That is the, the armor that we put on that we face battle. Think about also the blood of Christ, as we've talked about at communion. And we talk about the testimony that we have. Revelation 12, 11 says, And they have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So, folks, we need to know not only what we believe, but why we believe it. We need to keep asking ourselves that question. What is the why? Why? Why are we pro-life? Why are we against abortion? What does the Bible say? Why are we treating others with dignity? Because they're made in the image of God. Why am I voting as an American citizen with that opportunity? We need to answer the why questions in our life instead of trying to just be a moral person. Second of all, we have to take every thought captive. In these verses, Second Corinthians 10, 5, the second part talks about that. Biblical worldview is essential. The problem is too many of us, we separate the secular from the sacred. We come here on Sunday and maybe we come and serve sometime during the week, but then we view the rest of the week as something different than being here and serving God. But I like what Vodi Bauckham said, and I've been adopting this into my life. He said, all of Christ for all of life. All of Christ for all of life. Everything we do is an act of worship. Whether it's washing those dishes, whether it's, taking care, whether it's taking care of the kids, whether it's doing the laundry, whether it's doing our job nine to five, whatever it is, all of Christ for all of life. The problem is that people do not have biblical worldview of civics, politics, genders, marriage, abortion, finances, a biblical worldview of relationships, how to view vocation as a calling, education, how to view other ethnicities. We're all one human race, and someone has said some of us are more melatonin-challenged than others. We don't know how to discern the truth that many times is clearly found in the Word of God. So I want to give you something very valuable and important as a takeaway from this study you've got in your notes. Hermeneutics is the study of how to interpret the Bible. I spent an entire semester In college, going through the process and putting into practice these basic principles. And in fact, every week, I spend time using these exact principles to craft a sermon and to do studies for other things. And so these principles apply, but they should apply to you to help you to interpret the scripture and avoid false teaching. And I'm just going to quickly go through this, but some presuppositions as you approach the Bible... We view the Bible as God's word. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's inspired. It's our final authority for faith and how we practice our faith. Second of all, we believe the truths of God's word are knowable and able to be interpreted. There is a way to interpret. Now, yes, there's definitely verses in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and we could go on and on with all kinds of places where there's things that are difficult we can come up with several reasons or how to interpret those things. But in general, we can interpret the things of the word of God and we respond to what we interpret with our lives. That's important. We just don't do this to gain knowledge. We do it to internalize it into our lives and to live it out. And then the process of moving from study to practice is something that only God can enable and he does so through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. And I encourage you to look at those verses when you go home. I could tell you that before I became a believer at age 14, and I went to church and I read the Bible, it was like literature to me. But the day I came to faith in Christ and had the Holy Spirit, the whole thing opened up in new and fresh ways that I never saw before. Why? Because the Holy Spirit gave me spiritual eyes to understand the Word of God. So how do you interpret scripture? Exegesis versus eisegesis. Exegesis means that we go to the word of God without any preconceived agenda or idea and we dig in and we seek the truth out of it. Eisegesis is when we go to the Bible with a preconceived idea or agenda and we look for verses to support that agenda. We need to be going to look for the truth and dig it out for ourselves and come with no preconceived ideas. Read the text over several times. Develop an outline. What is the theme of the passage? What's the context of the passage? What's the culture, the history? What are the definitions of the words in their original language? Three, studying using resources to take notes and gain understanding on how to interpret the passage. Notice, the first two points, we don't even get to commentaries or resources or anything. We're digging into it for ourselves. But be selective of your resources and understand the background of the resources. Not too many years ago, a pastor was retiring and he offered me his commentaries and I took one set and as I began to read it, I won't identify who it was, but one of the guys in there didn't believe in miracles or the supernatural. And so they went into the dumpster. You need to know the resources and the background of these things, commentaries, lexicons, which help you Um, understand the meaning of the word in the original text. Bible dictionaries, maps, cross-references in the Bible, looking at other translations and paraphrases of these verses that you're studying. And then four, begin to put together your interpretation of the passages of Scripture you're studying. How does this fit with the rest of Scripture? What is the passage saying to me personally? And that's so important. Because God's word is a love letter written to us to transform us and for us to have him communicate to us through it. And then application. This is so important. What do I need to obey? What do I need to do in relation to my church and other people? How do I put what I've learned into practice? Again, that's the end result of digging into God's word is it changes your life. We put our lives up to the mirror of God's word, as James says, and we're not merely hearers, but we are doers of the word. So I have a suggestion at the end of all that. Have a way to journal or write down what you've learned and want to apply. So beneficial to go back and see what you've written a couple years ago and to see how far you've come, how far you've grown in your faith. So here's the application. God has given to us the truth. And the explanation of reality, don't deviate from it. God has given us the truth. And in his word, it explains reality. Don't deviate from it. Thirdly, be willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Be willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Here's a mini reminder. The mindset we need when we face persecution We can't go in detail, but here are some key thoughts to be aware of. First, as believers in Christ, accept the fact and be willing to accept that people are going to, at times, reject the message of the gospel. And if Christ, who is perfect and was rejected on earth, remember that we will be rejected. And the thing that I have to keep coming back to in my own mind is that they're not rejecting me. They're rejecting the message of Christ. In 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not a fun verse to read. Not a fun verse to claim. But we need to understand the reality. In Philippians 1.29, Paul said, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, And now here that I still have. So when we are going through difficult times, when we're being persecuted, okay, we can look to what Paul did and get an example. He says, you're going through what I'm going through myself. Understand the source of the rejection and persecution and embrace the cross and all of its teaching, all of its benefit, all the cross's wisdom. The cross is an offense to those who do not believe. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that's why that famous hymn, The Old Rugged Cross, is so meaningful to so many as we embrace that cross and its meaning in our lives. Remember, you're not alone in facing persecution, and there's an eternal reward awaiting you as a result of your suffering for righteousness sake Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 blessed blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you And if that's not enough, Jesus goes on in the next verse I'm about to read to teach us how to love our enemies and treat them with grace, respect, and dignity when they revile you. There's a video out there of a person who is in the Communist Party higher up in Russia. And he talks about how they subvert a country and how they undermine it and how they bring it to a place where they get rid of all religion and become atheistic, and they can control the people. They said there's only one thing, this guy said, there's only one thing that can stop them. It's Christians, because they're willing to die for their faith. He says that's the only thing that can stop communism is because they stand for their faith, they're willing to be persecuted, and they do it with grace and humility. Luke 6.35, Jesus said, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Remember that part of the purpose of persecution and suffering is to build endurance so we can be faithful to God in the end of our life and run into his arms as he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Persecution and having this joy underlying us and treating enemies with grace produces hope in this life. Hope of eternal rest in the new heaven and the new earth that Hebrews, 2 Peter, and Revelation promises. In Romans 5, verses 3 through 4, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So when you go through the difficulties of life, you kind of pare down everything and you see what is really important I'm going to tell you a story that, uh, about it it still terrifies my kids when I tell the story, but, um, we, uh, I was out with a friend of mine. We were playing golf at a golf course and we got to the 15th hole and uh, this is over in Eastern Illinois and the sky became pitch black and was coming our way and we started hearing tornado sirens. I've shared this story with some of you in connect group and, uh, My friend and I, we were walking, we didn't have a golf cart, the other guys had a cart. So come on, we got three more holes, we can make it. Yeah, we made it one more and then it started to rain. So they got in their cart and drove off and left us and we were running for the clubhouse and someone graciously brought us into the clubhouse. Well, there was a tornado warning and it was coming and the tornado was sighted about 10 miles from my house and so I was driving uh, as quickly as I could to get home. And you know, my kids, they were in elementary school and we had taken some appliance boxes, and we had created this house for them. And they had painted it and decorated it and everything, and it was in our garage. Well, when I got to the house, I opened the garage door, and my kids were standing there. And to their terror, I ripped that thing right out of the garage, and I parked my car in there because I didn't want hail damage to my car. And, you know, the moral of that story is a few days later, I rebuilt that for them. But the truth is that when we're facing disaster and suffering in our lives and difficulties... We have to understand what is the most important thing. What is the most important thing to protect us and to care for us in our lives? What are the effects of man-centered religion, religion without God? Don't be surprised at what you see in the news as things get more grotesque and sickening to hear and watch. I'm never surprised because as you think about what the end result of sin does, it reminds me of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. You know, in the Old Testament, God brought you know, sulfur and fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. He had Israelites kill the pagan nations, bloody wars. But in our time, in Romans 1, he used what's called passive judgment. He allows the natural consequences of people's selfish ways, let them follow it to their end, and it creates the judgment upon them. The downward spiral of depravity. In Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, I just want to just read these, and I encourage you to go through this because we need to understand what we are facing in our culture, and we're seeing these things come to pass. First of all, they suppress the truth. Paul says God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. In other words, they know the truth, but they willingly push it aside. Second of all, they dishonor God. It says there in verse 21 of Romans 1, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. They snubbed the creator as an unwelcome guest. Thirdly, they become fools. As their hearts take on increasing darkness, they claim wisdom, but prove themselves fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Four, this is so important, they trade reality for fiction. They worship the creation over the creator. They exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised Forever. Then they turn their backs on God. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, the creator is no longer worthy of a passing thought. They fill up with unrighteousness. They empty themselves of God and thoughts of him. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice, and so on. In 129 of Romans. And lastly, they celebrate. They celebrate depravity. Don't you see that all around us in our culture? It says, although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them, in verse 32. God directly punished people groups who disobeyed him in the Old Testament, but God is passively punishing people in our current time. They're letting men and women live out their desires without much restraint or consequences and let the natural consequences of their actions run its course. And we see the damage that's being done, all the consequences that go with destroying the home life of marriage and family, the results of immoral sexual behavior, divorces and the perversion of home situations, same-sex marriages, multiple people living in the home involved sexually together, boyfriends and girlfriends, instead of a stable home with a husband and wife and a committed relationship with Christ at the center of it. Soon, I believe, sad to say, I don't really want this to happen, obviously, I'm totally against it, but I believe at some point they'll lower the age of consent and pedophilia is being lobbied for all the time and it may become accepted in our culture. The sexualization of our children in school and in our communities. Drag queen shows for families. Taking away parents' rights to know what groomers are saying to our kids, allowing the change of their sexual identity without parents' knowledge of it. And abortion rights, harboring aborted babies, their parts, allowing death of babies up to the point of birth. And even in Maryland, they attempted to pass a law that parents could make a decision after birth, whether they wanted to have the child live or not. And of course, the legalization of drugs. Here's the quote of the sermon right here. This is amazing. Phil Knight, who's very progressive CEO of Nike, said, one of the political cartoons after our legislative session had a person snorting cocaine out of a mountain of white. It said, Which of these is illegal in Oregon? And the answer was the plastic straw. <laughs> Tells you where things are. The application understand the times and accept the fact persecution is coming for righteousness' sake. We now turn to the key verses in 2 Peter about growing continually in the grace and relationship with Christ, by growing continually in the grace and the relationship with Christ. The last two verses of Second Peter 3 say, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people, and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Psalm 119, or Psalm 19, I should say, says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. That should say Psalm 19, 7 and 8. So the more we experience God and grow from what we learn in those experiences, the more blessed we are and the more grateful we become. So one of the things I have in my office is a sign that I look at as I walk in my office, start each day with a grateful heart. Start each day with a grateful heart. And I think that's where we need to be. That's why we've given you a calendar, and if you haven't picked one up, they're out in the lobby, to write down daily the blessings, the things that you can be grateful for that God is doing in your life. So the application here is this. Sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin, as John Bunyan so aptly said. Sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. Lastly, as we close out these very two important books, be hoping with expectancy in the return of Christ. Be hoping with expectancy to the return of Christ. And we've talked about that the last couple of weeks. But it says in 2 Peter 3.18, to him be the glory both now and now, And to the day of eternity, amen. I want you to take your Bible, turn over to Luke chapter 12 as we are about to close. But there's a very interesting picture of Christ as he returns. We know he's going to come and he's going to judge the people on the earth. There's going to be a big battle in the valley of Megiddo, the nations there will be judged. And he will separate the sheep and the goats at the great white throne judgment. But do you think about what he's doing on behalf of the believers in Christ? In Luke chapter 12, verse 35 to 37, you see one of the most astonishing images of Christ at his coming. A master from a marriage feast. It says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Notice what it says. It goes on to say, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service. Christ will dress himself for service and have them, the believers, recline at a table, and he will come and serve them. Now we are the servants. There's no doubt means that we're to do exactly as we're told. But the wonder of this picture is the master insists on serving. We may understand this better as we think about his earthly ministry. In Mark 10, 45, they came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But here in Luke, it's a picture of his second coming when the Son of Man comes in the blinding glory of the Father with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Why would Jesus be portrayed as a table waiter at his second coming? because the very heart of the glory is the fullness of grace that overflows in kindness to needy people. That's why Ephesians 2.7 says that God's aim in the coming ages is to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is the greatness of our God? What is the uniqueness in this world? Isaiah said, "From Of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God Besides thee, and notice what he says, who works for those who wait for him. There is no other God like this. He never relinquishes the role of his inexhaustible, caretaking attitude of his ever-dependent, happy people. He wants to come back to love us, to serve us, and to show us the overflowing kindness of his glory. What an amazing, amazing thought for us as believers. So the goal for our lives, our children's lives and the lives of our grandchildren is found in 2 John 1.4. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. That's my constant prayer for my kids and my grandkids that five years from now or after I pass away to know when we get to heaven that they continue to walk in their faith. This must be the goal of our church through evangelism And intentional, and I mean intentional, discipleship to teach moms and dads, kids and grandkids how to endure and be a light as we roam through the darkness of this culture. The darkness is touching all of us at some point in our lives and family lives if we are honest. So here's the final application. Stay focused on Christ to the end so you can run the race and endure to the end. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't quit. Stay focused on Christ to the end so you can run the race and endure to the end. As we're about to pray, here's the key thought to think about. Are you prepared to face the opposition and endure to the end? Are you prepared to face the opposition and endure to the end? I've served under three pastors before becoming a senior pastor. and sad to say all three of those pastors are no longer in the ministry The second one I served under, his wife left him and divorced and they went their separate ways. The pastor uh, I I served under uh, recently before coming here and being the pastor there after he left, um, he ended up with depression and mental illness and stepped out of the ministry. And at 67, he's a nurse in Xenia, Ohio. The first pastor I served under told us in a staff meeting the very first time we gathered together that, that he, he didn't have any weakness when it came to women and money, which in two years' time proved to be the exact reasons that he ended up falling out of the ministry. And I think of 1 Corinthians 10:12 it says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The thing we have to battle against is pride and to continue to be humble and dependent upon God. Let's bow for prayer. Do you feel prepared to run the race to the end? No matter what comes our way, that's the challenge. I can't tell you what's going to happen in a year, two years, three months from now in your life or mine. October 1st, my wife went through a stroke. She could have been in heaven. We never know what's going to happen. But are you prepared to run the race to the end? Are you confident in who you are in Christ? I leave you with that to think about as we pray and sing this last song. Father, we come before you. These are sobering things in sobering times. Lord, I'm watching people jump off this path of their spiritual journey, off into the world, deconstructing, giving up on their faith, saying it's too hard, the temptations are too strong. But Lord, we know that through the word of God, we've seen so many people endure even more difficult situations that we are in. And help us, Lord, help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on you and to stay true to your word so we can be prepared to thrive, not just survive, but thrive in the current culture around us as it darkens evermore, running away from you. Give us that hope. Give us that confidence. Give us that rest in you. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.